And I am Aware Now. Aware Now, the official platform for causes. Tune in and turn it up as we raise awareness one story at a time for the causes that tie us all together. From Writing on the Wall, an Aware Now column by Eddie Donaldson, an exclusive interview with Jim Evans, a.k.a. Taz, a.k.a. The Rock Poster God. You know, Jim's the rock poster god. Well, a rock poster is really just one piece of paper with a bunch of band names on it. It's a picture, right? And it sits there. Where if the rock poster gets put on it as an NFT, it gets sold on a blockchain, and you can tell a bigger story about the poster, about what goes into the poster. People start talking about it. So it's a, it, uh, it engages a, a, what would you call it, a more global consciousness around the object itself. The downside, of course, is being the, the amount of energy that's eaten up by the NFTs, and I hope they solve that, because a lot of people, like, for instance, your friend uh, Shepard, won't have anything to do with it because of that alone. I mean, ecologically, it's a disaster area. It really is. Yeah. And so I can't say anything good about that part of it, but, it's, but creatively, I'd say it, it's, uh, it's a wide open field. I would say that the pandemic has exacerbated the acceptance of uh, a virtual world and it's not like the virtual world hasn't existed before, it's existed in games, but the idea of like people buying into it and uh, connecting online in these metaverses, using the NFTs as like things to decorate their, their rooms or decorate their worlds and, and collect things. I mean, you've got like uh, on OpenSea, you've got like dozens and dozens and hundreds or thousands of collectors, basically little galleries. People have like, you know, gotten on there, found things that they like, created like a, you know, like a hit list of their favorite pieces, the pieces they own, the pieces they're going to sell. You've got literally like thousands of gallery owners. In the metaverse. Right. Yeah. And they make, they have a name for themselves, they have an identity for themselves. That's, that's pretty unique. I didn't really see that coming at all. I mean, we're pretty easy right now in the NFT space, right? We're doing the fluff world thing. Mm -hmm. We got the rabbit. Right. We got, we got the Jane's Addiction, you and Dave Navarro's collaboration, sitting on right. hold waiting for a home. Um, and then the Rolling Stone logo was, was obviously a, a good collaboration. Yeah, one of the top one of the top ten sales. I mean, one point two billion is not right. a bad, not a bad take. With a company called Cosmic Wire, they're doing that. Yeah. Um, okay. So. So yeah, it has it has changed things a lot. I mean, something that would have been a, a a digital file or a TIFF file two years ago is now can be like a valuable object that makes hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, you know what I'd like to do, and I'm going on record with this is I think now as part of offering for poster designs we should or you should figure out a way where not only do we do the static image but there we have an avenue or a channel where we can take these rock guys posters live in the metal world as an extension i mean the revenue is obviously amazing but it's just like such a larger audience than just a fan the fan of the band itself it's mm -hmm. like a fan of the nft you know people that live in the metaverse well people are going to certainly want to hang them on the walls of their um, their their uh their rooms, their virtual rooms. Yeah, that they own. Their virtual spaces. Uh, and I'm sure that people have like uh, will have virtual spaces where they actually have like uh, an NFT uh, player on the wall yes. where they can showcase their slide favorite show. pieces. Yeah. yeah. We used to call them slideshows. Old yeah. back in the old days. Yeah. So we're here today uh, for a piece that's going to be in Aware Now magazine, which is a cause-related platform. And I wanted to talk a little bit today about you know you've been pretty active in the cause-related space and the, and the activism space. What uh, can you give us some history on some of the things that you've done? Uh, in the 80s, I did uh, a lot for Sane Freeze. I mean, that's when uh, 
nuclear power. Um, you know, Ronald Reagan was going to uh, launch a bunch of satellites with missiles on them. And I mean, the, the fear of uh, nuclear power, nuclear bombs, nuclear war in the Cold War probably obsessed me most of my life. I mean, I, I was like one of the generation that, that lived in fear of this, this freaking madness, you know? It just seemed to be pervasive all the time. And it kind of raised to like a, a huge level, I would say in the early 80s. And I started uh, working for Sane Freeze, you know, tried to, to, uh, to bring uh, sanity to that, uh, that particular dialogue. That was probably one of the first big causes I did, I think. Uh, I've done a lot of things for different causes over the years and just contributed things here and there. But I would say in the 90s, I got more into it with um, Rock for Choice, uh, Rock the Vote, El Rescate, the immigration group. So a lot of Hollywood things I did. Um, the Beastie Boys, yeah, uh, Tibetan Freedom. Yeah. Well, Tibetan Freedom, I was going to go back to uh, Music Cares. Okay. I did a lot with Music Cares as well. I did a uh, big billboard for that uh, and raised a lot of money for them and had events with um, uh, guys with the Beach Boys and uh, Chris Christopherson and Paul McCartney. I mean, all kinds of people were involved in that. So it was a, mostly Hollywood type uh, things. I mean, I raised a lot of money for Frank Sinatra at his birthday party for uh, Society, what, Society of Seven? Society of Society Singers, yeah. So that was, uh, you know, I've done, I, I think that uh, my work can be convincing, uh, you know, almost in a propaganda level way. And I would say, unlike uh, Shepard, I tend to hide my messages a little bit more in the, um, uh, the execution of the piece. I mean, Tibetan Freedom Concert, I, I made, uh, you know, like a concert poster, and it did what it did, and it challenged the, the Chinese government and it brought human rights to the forefront and it was, uh, you know, big events that raised a lot of money. So I was like proud to do that. I really liked working with the monks, uh, you know, hearing what they had to say. I mean, I didn't have to be convinced to do it because obviously I was like on board with that, yeah. that particular kind of thing to begin with. Yeah. What, um, would you say that comes from kind of a, just an inherent spiritual, uh, I mean, your, your inherent spirituality? I mean, I know that, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, about your days with Yogi Bhajan. Ah, Yogi Bhajan. <laughs> well, when I first came to Los Angeles, uh, you know, it was uh, a, a sort of a hippie maelstrom. I mean, just like uh, every kind of uh, religion and, and creed and culture was just like wrapping together. I was very attracted. I mean, I, I studied a lot, a lot of things. I mean, I studied literally everything, but I was probably most attracted to, to Buddhism. So, I mean, Yogi Bhajan obviously wasn't a Buddhist. I studied uh, Kundalini Yoga with him. And I went to a place called the East West Cultural Center and I, um, I met him there. I, was, I walked from, uh, from my apartment to school every day and I kept walking past the East West Cultural Center. I told my wife, I said, oh, we should, we should go here and see what's happening. So we went in there and then, you know, a few weeks later, Yogi Bhajan, I guess, was like beginning, um, beginning a sojourn in the United States and he showed up there and he started teaching classes. Then there was a, a, an event called the uh, Fujiyama Odyssey where all the guys from Woodstock were gonna have a, a gigantic rock festival at the foot of Mount Fuji. And Yogi Bhajan was brought there to be the spiritual guide, guidance of the, you know, like running that particular crowd of like drug crazed hedonists was like, you know, a job even for a guy like him. And he was, he was a serious individual. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he like really cracked the whip. But he convinced him to make me the uh, creative director, which, is, which was like a huge job because I really was like still going to art school. I was in the, uh, the Navy Reserve. I had a job at uh, a magazine in, in, uh, in Westwood uh, shooting photographs. I was like, uh, like the 
sort of the house hippie. I could get into all the, whatever there was a riot or like uh, Ronald Reagan was at, uh, you know, like trying to uh, slam dunk Eldridge Cleaver at UCLA or something like that. They would send me up there with a the camera and I could like run in, you know, I was like the guy. I just go in there and get the shots I needed. Paparazzi. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, they give me a press pass a lot of times for different events, but usually it would just be some some uh, some guy at the door with an afro or something like that. Fist bumped me as I went by, and he said, "So you're here to get pictures, right?" Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, all good, man. Let's go. Yeah, great. So that worked out well. Uh, and Yogi Bhajan, it was. I thought he was a pretty righteous character, you know, getting me that, that job. He just said, you know, just use Jimmy. He's a good artist, you know. He could do exactly what you want. And I said, you know, what's his what's his experience? And he said, just take him, you know. And I started working, so it worked out well. And probably the good part for me is the fact that it all just exploded and I went on to the next thing. But, you know, if I had to see it all the way through to the end, I don't know how well I would have done. Because it was a big, big project, a lot of money involved in it. Yeah. I designed logos for it and posters and things like that. They're probably collector's items now for an event that never happened. I noticed Michael Lang just uh, died. Wow. Yeah. He was yeah, involved in that. Just died too. Hmm? A lot of people are dying. Yeah, yeah. So I would say the spirituality in, in terms of the, uh, you know, finding an inner space, uh, getting in touch with people, like uh, understanding the way people think through spirituality has been like probably key to my discipline from the very beginning. I mean, I wouldn't say that like, that I sort of dabbled with spirituality and then went away from it. I would say that like, when I think, uh, of say if I want to get involved in an issue or a cause or something like that. It's sort of my Buddhist nature to engage the things that I think will be most helpful. Because I, you know, like non-harm, you know, like making sure that everything works for everyone, that kind of thing. And that's why the Tibetan Freedom Concert, obviously, with the uh, Tibetan Buddhists was uh, something that really worked well for me. Like the first time I really got a chance to like translate um, what I would consider spiritual art into something that could be used as a rock poster. I mean, subsequently, even with yours, you've seen I've used it a lot now, where I can just basically take a really spiritual figure. And I sort of like that idea where I could take spirituality and do it so convincingly that people would see it as like a, a, a cool rock thing, but at the same time, they'd feel the vibration from yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. the underlying vibration. So in that sense, it, it goes back to like where I say that uh, when I did issue-oriented type things, that I tended to hide them, like that thing I did for uh, L7 and Pearl Jam. I made it into a rock poster, you know, primarily, but I, the message was at the top and the bottom, you know? Yeah. We're not gonna go back, you know, feminist majority, you know, rock for choice, that kind of thing. All the messages were there, but at the same time, it just said Pearl Jam and L7, and had that cool little cat girl with the guitar and stuff like that. So those are the things that I think that is kind of my power, where I don't really have to like, you know, drop the hammer on a gigantic propaganda poster, I can actually say what I want to say and hide it in the way that I do work. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I really love that Palm Springs poster that he pops. Like it's, you know, for me, because of my spiritual, my practice, my Kundalini practice, mm -hmm. it really speaks to me. But I see how, I see when you mean, it crosses over, it doesn't, it's not shoving it down your throat. You, you, you kind of spice it up so it fits in the you want to show people the way. Yeah, that's right, and it does, it kind of draws you in. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about Risky for a minute. All right. How's that been working with Risky over the last five years and collaborating? I mean, I've collaborated with a lot of people, and I would say that uh, Risky or Kelly 
is probably one of my favorite collaborators. I mean, he's, uh, he's like one of the hardest working artists that I've, that I've seen. Um, his ability to work with someone, considering his stature and the power that he brings to something is, um, uh, what would you call it? it uh, I mean, it threw me off at first because I thought like, it's gonna be really difficult. You know, like, why is he gonna, you know, why is he gonna accept this because he already does all that. But he's like a, um, a musician. You know, having started in music, I like to I like to jam with people, and I found that working with him, we would just start talking, and it would be like a jam session. We would just go back and forth, back and forth, and, and we would sync up and decide to do something, and we'd sketch something out. And I'd go home and I'd finish it up, bring it back. He'd say, "Oh, we could do this, we could do that," and then we blow it up, to, you know, and it became things like this, yeah. or like this. Yeah. yeah. Like this thing here, I wouldn't have done at all if he hadn't suggested it because I was sort of over hot rods. I mean, I revived hot rods a little bit, like dorky, you know, hot rods I did in high school. But I felt like, you know, after you've got like, you know, you've been doing it since you were like a teenager, yeah. and then you bring it back up, you know, like in the 90s because everybody's doing dorky hot rods, right? So I was like, oh, I can do dorky hot rods. But then he suggested doing it again and putting a paint can on it. So I thought, mm, with a paint can, that would work. So I think that's like his brilliance, is like just bringing things, you know? Uh, Richard Dwyer, who I worked with, was, was similar in a sense that although Richard didn't have a, a what would you call it, uh, the longevity in terms of in, uh, mental engagement that, that Kelly does, Kelly stays with something, like if he comes out and he starts working, like when he finishes it, it's done, right? Whether it's three o'clock in the morning or whatever, the next day, I mean, he finishes the job and he always has like a, like a vision, he can like see through things, he can like work with it. Richard would come in with like brilliant ideas for half hour <laughs> and, then, and, then we, and then of course I would, I would end up finishing him a lot but I think the, our collaborations worked really well but at the same time he wasn't, uh, he wasn't engaged he would be like he would be there for an hour on Tuesday and then maybe two hours on Thursday and then I wouldn't see him right get that high concentration level. right so I think I think Risky is, uh, is not only a great artist, but a, a great collaborator. And I mean, not just with me, but he works with other people really well too. Nice. So I'm sitting here and I'm looking at these toys that you have, which hopefully we'll get some B-roll on, but what, what is it with the toys, Jim? You're, you're, you're an older gentleman and you have a very large toy collection in here. Why don't you tell us why? <laughs> well, toys, uh, I mean, obviously I've always liked toys, but I, I, I guess I, I uh, it reminds me of my, initially it reminded me of my childhood, but at the same time that wasn't just enough. I mean, I've always collected toys to some degree, but I, you know, it, it's the color, the imagination, the ridiculous characters, those kinds of things that like sort of set me off. So a lot of times I'll just look at the shelf and I'll come up with an idea because it's just some dorky character. I mean, when I was a little kid, most of the characters sort of had a, a reason to exist, but with the, um, with the vinyl revolution, I would say that they've, they've created characters that literally had no reason or like the cause character who was sort of a I don't know like a, an acid head Mickey Mouse kind of guy who evolved into like the fucking biggest thing on earth so I love watching the evolution of toys I would say that the world has become more like me than me becoming more like the world like I collected toys you know most of my life. I would say I started like collecting like robot toys and things like really heavily when I moved to Hawaii. And I started seeing these, uh, you know, like I'd go to the Japanese shops on Kalakaua Avenue and I'd see these, these uh, common riders. 
And I think like, holy crap, what is this thing? I take the head off, you know, and it was like a robot head. And then there'd be a human underneath it. And I'd, I'd put it up on a shelf and I'd go, I really dig that. I really need 10 of them, right? Yeah. Then I'd, I'd get 10, I get all the common riders, right? So, and then uh, when I came back, I discovered a little toy shop in uh, Little Tokyo. And somebody said, hey, you know all that crap you collect? He said, there's like a toy shop in uh, Little Tokyo that has those. And I said, huh? No, it had a big, uh, had a big Ultraman out in front. Did you ever go to Giant Robot? Did I ever go to Giant Robot? Like a million times. I know the guy really well. Yeah. I mean, Giant Robot was way, way later. This thing here was like the OG toy shop. I actually went down there in the middle of the night the first time when a guy told me about it. And I said, there's no way this exists, right? So I drive up to Little Tokyo, complete streets are completely empty. I jump out of my car, I walk there, and I put my head out of the window and I'm like, oh my God. I could hardly wait till like 10 a.m. till this place opened. I couldn't even believe it. And then I saw that giant Ultraman because they, they pull it out in front and they put it in front of the shop. And through the window, I'm looking at this like 10 foot high Ultraman. I'm thinking, oh my God, God lives in this shop, yeah, right? You're in that <laughs> So I'm Nancy, I'll tell you, I bought tons and tons of toys there. And then when the house burned down, a lot of toys burned and we went to a place uh, called Kimono My House in uh, San Francisco and rebought a lot of the toys. Yeah, yeah. And then the we vinyl have, toy thing just became like a whole other level, I would say. A, we have a toy coming, right? Yeah. Or at least that's the idea. That's the idea. We're going to yeah. do the seventh letter bomb boy. Mm -hmm. uh, seventh letter. Seventh letter boy. Hopefully that'll come out sometime in 2022. Mm -hmm. If we can get Mr. Zoltan to, you know, get the, get put the boat in the water. Big shout out to Casey Zoltan for the seventh letter. Obviously an inspiration to all of us. Uh, Casey's another guy I met back when I first met you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was my partner in Gorilla One. I mean, he really was the back backbone to most of it. You know, I was kind of the idea guy, but he was what made it really real, you know, because of our graffiti network across the country. Um, yeah, he brought me a graffiti version of Taz. I had no idea who this kid was. He just come walking into my office and like hands me this thing and says, here's a graffiti version of your name. Yeah, speaking of graffiti, who's your favorite graffiti artist besides Kelly? We know that that's your friend. But if you had to think of someone, you know, taking it outside of our immediate circle, and you had to, and I mean a graffiti artist, I don't, I don't mean, you know, no offense to some of these other guys that kind of walked the line, but if you had to think of someone over the years, who's, who's, who's your favorite graffiti artist? Futura. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's not even a, uh, any contest for me. I think that Futura has, uh, has been the best of the best. I mean, he, he, he combines like, like painting uh, that uses graffiti techniques, but it, I mean, I, I would call it legitimate abstract painting. And he's created like in, in, incredible logos. I mean, he's a, he's a monster calligrapher. Uh, philosophically, he seems right on the mark. The idea that uh, he's done what he's done, the way he's done it, and the collaborators he's collaborated with. I mean, for me, like, uh, you know, Murakami and, you know, Futura meeting together has to be like, you know, like a meeting of the gods or something like that. Anyway, Futura, I, I just, I, you know, I, I really admire his work. I, yeah. I admire everything he's done. Didn't he? Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the love style concept that we came up with. We have two, shoot two show, three shows coming up this year, hopefully more, but we have love Philadelphia style, we have love Los Angeles style, and love Malibu style. And you are really the reason we're doing the Malibu because it's your home and it's where you live and this is your, this is the epicenter, you know, this is your, 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 your castle. Uh, are you looking forward to love Malibu style? I am, yeah, yeah. Getting the community together and 
supporting each other. Yeah. I mean, it's something I normally do. I'm not really a very community-oriented guy. I mean, even though I would say that I have like groups that I, I hang out with in Malibu, I would say the, the surf group, like the people I surf with, like barely know me. I mean, they know me as the artist, but I'm like, you know, like uh, a surfer. Yeah, you're Jimbo. Right, Jimbo, the surfer, right? And all they care about is like the board I'm riding and like, you know, if I got a new wetsuit or something like that. So I really enjoy that part of Malibu, like getting out in the water and the dolphins jumping around and hanging out with your bros and sisters and uh, all the people that surf. And you have like a whole other dialogue out there. And yeah. I like that part of Malibu a lot. Then I like the, the ambiance of Malibu where it never turns into like Newport Beach or Laguna Beach because the Santa Monica Mountains, you really can't overbuild it. Yeah. So Malibu doesn't look substantially different than it did when I moved here in the late 70s. Would you say, Nancy? Doesn't look good. Yeah, it's about the same. You really can't expand it that much. So in that sense, it's got like, I mean, the first time I came here in the 60s, when we drove to uh, Malibu, my dad had to drive me because I, I couldn't, I wasn't old enough to drive yet. And he drove me and all my friends to go surfing at Malibu, right? And as we're driving to Malibu, I thought Malibu was like, I, all you hear is a colony and Malibu and movie stars. And I thought, I thought it was gonna be total glamour. I thought it was basically, you're gonna be driving through Beverly Hills and then you're gonna get to the beach, yeah. right? And I. And when we, when we finally got to the Malibu wall, I said, so where the hell is Malibu? Yeah, no like, right? <laughs> because then there wasn't even nearly as many beaches on uh, houses on the beach, and they weren't that big. They were actually somewhat ramshackle. They had like, you know, like a, a jazz club. They had uh, what, Tongalay, things like that. Alice's, not Alice's restaurant in those days. They had Tongalay at that time, but it was like, it didn't look anything except the fact that there were 400 surfers out in the water. And coming from Oceanside, I had no idea that there were that many surfers in the world. I didn't know that, like, I'm like, uh, well, how do you paddle out here? Yeah. How, do you, how do you compete with that? Speaking of surfing, would you consider surfing kind of a form of meditation for you? I think it's absolutely a form of meditation, yeah. I mean, the, the freedom of uh, the water I mean, I don't like to make that big of a thing out of surfing because I don't want to be that, that guy. But at the same time, I'd say that surfing has synced with my, uh, my spiritual beliefs almost completely because, I mean, you paddle out, you have no idea what's going to be happening. I mean, uh, you ride a wave and it's never there again. I mean, for the moment, it's there. You choose the line you're going to ride it on, the way you're going to ride it. You're dealing with the elements and at the same time, it's like it's outer space to your inner space. So I would say that surfing, I actually I've mentioned this a couple times to other surfers, I said, it's like the only time that I actually pay attention, like when I'm riding my bike, I don't pay attention on thinking about art or yeah. junk or whatever, right? When I'm on the elliptical cycle, I'm reading a book or something like that. But when I surf, I actually pay attention to surf. And the better the surf is, the bigger it is, and the crazier it is, the more you think about it. You're just like sitting out there and you don't want to like, right? You don't want it to break on your head. <laughs> and when that, when, that, uh, when that wave comes across the point, you want to be in position to get it, right? And there's all these other guys, you know, and it's like, the one thing I like about surfing is that the democracy of surfing is like, like some 12-year-old can surf as good as I can, or like some other guy can, you know, on any given day, I mean, the best guys are gonna be the best guys in the water, but at the same time, almost anybody can be good. They can be in the right position and just get an insane wave, right? So I, I like that part of it, but I'd say that, uh, the meditative state of surfing, you're floating in the water. You're basically, you're back in the amniotic fluid. I mean, I think it's its very much like, uh, re, yeah, so if I get into surfing and I talk about the details of surfing, yeah, I'm here forever. I'm here forever, right? But yeah, I, I do believe it's very meditative so, and very good for you, right? So one of my- He would agree. One of my favorite James Addiction songs is Ocean Size. You know, no one moves you and no one tries, you know? I personally don't like to surf, but um, I just thought about James Addiction song. 
So, um, who's the favorite person you ever surfed with? Like, what, like, give us an example of some oh wow moment in the water. Uh, I mean, probably there'd be a ton of them, but one of the best ones was uh, I was down in Baja uh, with Nancy, and I was surfing at uh, Coast Azul, I think it was, right? And I was out, I thought I was out in the water alone, or maybe one or two other people, and I was on a wave, and I heard this voice behind me said, hey Jim, get the fuck out of my way. And I turned around, it was like Mike Doyle, right? Yeah. <laughs> like Mike Doyle, the giant, right? And I mean, I'd known him because I did a lot of stuff for him, uh, you know, for his wax research and all that. But he like saw me, took off on a wave and caught up with me. And then we went up to his house and all that. But like to be like down in Mexico and like surfing on a wave and having Mike Doyle yell at you. And it's like, you turn around and you go, whoa, Mike, what's up, right? <laughs> that's, that's what surfing's about, right? Yeah. That kind of ambient thing. So if you right now could pick any band in the world that's dead or alive to design an album cover for, who would it be? Hmm. Probably Jimi Hendrix, I guess. That would be. Just because I, you know, I think that, it, I mean, when I listen to his guitar solos and things, even now, I'm just struck by how inventive they are. And I, I actually saw him in person a number of times, and I actually saw him really up close. I mean, I saw him play a couple sets up close. And uh, I was impressed then, but over the years, I haven't gotten tired of like what I hear from uh, from not only his writing but his approach to uh, the music, yeah. and I think that uh, because of the depth of what he did, like designing an album cover for him would be like one of the more interesting projects. I mean, I love the Beatles, I like the Rolling Stones, I mean, I like the Yardbirds, but at the same time, they're a lot more singular than I would say the Jimi Hendrix. Like I'll listen to the you know the guitar solo to Are You Experienced, and that thing is like. It's crazy now as it was the first time I heard it. I mean, it's so inventive, and the movements that he makes and things like that are just, I, I still stop and I listen to it and go like, wow, how did he even think of that? You know, so I would say he'd be the guy. Amazing. Tune into our podcast, subscribe to our magazine, find us and join us online. Visit IamAwareNow.com. We will no longer wait for permission to change the world. Together, we are aware now.